If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 1 through 15 this morning. On this Veterans Day weekend, certainly uh, want to thank those. Some of you here have served in the military in the past, and uh, thank you for uh, that sacrifice. Thank you for your service. Our own Pastor Dave is a veteran, and so where are you, Dave? Thanks. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, teach us this morning challenge us, convict us, encourage us, send your Holy Spirit to move among us with such great power that we would all leave here saying, God is in this place. Stir our hearts, incline our affections to Jesus, bend our wills that we would seek to follow him faithfully all of our days. And Lord, have your will with us, with every person here this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm always eager for everyone to listen to sermons. But not every sermon on every Sunday will apply in the same way for every person. So this sermon this morning is for anyone who has not made up their mind yet about Jesus. If that's you, I want you to pay particularly close attention. Now I know some of you just said, you just breathed. And you're like, I am pro-Jesus, thanks Brinkman, this is really good. I love it when sermons are not about me. Talk to the other people. Well, not exactly. 
Maybe you are visiting with us this morning, first time here, glad you're here. Maybe you've heard some things about Jesus, you're curious about Jesus. But you're not exactly sure what you actually think about him. Well, it's far easier to keep Jesus at a distance. It's a lot easier to keep him at afar, to analyze him from afar, maybe even admire him from afar, or pick him apart, but never actually bend your knee in submission to him. You have to decide about Jesus. Now, maybe you're a child. You're eight, you're 18, maybe you're 28. Maybe you grew up in church and your parents faithfully brought you to church. Have you decided what you actually think about Jesus? Have you honestly asked, what is it that I am actually confessing? What do I really believe? If you're a teenager, I get it. There's hundreds of questions that you're thinking about from day to day. What does she think about me? Why is he laughing at me? Does anybody notice me? And on and on. And yet the most important question, teenager, in your life is actually, what does Jesus think about me? Like, Jesus, what do you think about the way that I'm living, about the way that I'm conducting my life? No doubt some of you here maybe made a decision decades ago. Perhaps it was at a Sunday school. Maybe it was at a youth camp. Maybe during a youth group. Maybe as a university student. And you said, I I want the Lord to be Lord of my life. Well, what about now? How about today? Or tomorrow? Do you really want to live for him now? And it could be that you're putting a lot of assurance in a moment and a decision that was made decades ago. Jesus is far more interested in who you are today and what you are doing today. He's actually much more interested in that because he's not interested in a whole bunch of people making certain decisions about him. He's actually looking to know, are you actually following him today? Are you his disciple today? And I know many of you here really do love Jesus. But I wonder, where are you making those small compromises in your life? You're doing your best to stay away from the really, really big sins that might shipwreck your life and the stuff that church people talk about. But where might you be making, well, those are small compromises. You know it. Maybe the people closest to you are starting to figure that out. And you say, you know what, it's no big deal. I get it. I'm going to amend my ways. I've got time to correct. I'm going to get to that. I'm definitely going to change starting tomorrow. Maybe you've forgotten how one decision today can absolutely impact the rest of your earthly life. It's just one drink. I can get in that car. I can drive that car. It's just one look. It's one fling. It's one night. It's just a momentary lapse in judgment. One decision can, in fact, affect the rest of your life for the rest of your life. And there's no more important decision than what do you, what will you do with Jesus? And of course, in a a congregation this size, some of you may actually be mistaken about yourself. Maybe it is that the Holy Spirit's been working in your life and revealing that your Christianity is actually much more cultural 
you've been paying attention in adult Sunday school class. And your version of Christianity helps you. It, you know, you know the language, you know the customs, you know kind of the norms. It's actually good for business. But you find yourself in a very uncomfortable position because from day to day and week to week, you don't really think too much about Jesus at all. And that lands you in the very uncomfortable position of sitting on the fence. That's actually a very interesting expression, isn't it? Sitting on the fence. Have you actually tried to sit on a fence? Please don't raise your hands, because then i got to ask you more questions. But you can't do it. And like, why would you even want to do it in the first place? It doesn't really matter. Like, you're going to fall. And it really doesn't matter which way you fall. The point is, if you try to sit on the fence, you're going to fall. Jesus doesn't want you or me to sit on the fence when it comes to faith, when it comes to following him. He doesn't even want you to attempt to do it. He actually really wants you to know what you think about him. He wants you to know what you functionally believe about him. When you hear the name Jesus, what happens next? What do you say? What is it that you actually confess to be true about him? Now, in our text this morning, Mark gives us a very clear picture here of two different kingdoms ruled by two different leaders, each promising to deliver on two different, vastly different promises. One head of state is doing everything he can to hold on to power, to maintain control, to look reasonable, to look balanced, only to be found out to be weak and pathetic. The other king hardly says a word. He appears weak. He's, he gives up his own will. He's actually found, though, to be the true king of the world. And despite all outward appearances, that's the king that remains in complete control of his kingdom and in control over his people. And so the question this morning is, what kingdom are you living in and who do you really want to follow? What kingdom are you living in and who do you really want to follow? You need to decide. We find Jesus here in Mark chapter 15 in the very last day of his earthly life. This was a day that literally changed the world. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been arrested. He's been condemned by the religious elite. This is actually the start of what we know to be Good Friday. Again, the beginning of the last few hours of his life. And it begins with Jesus coming face to face with the most powerful man that he has met on planet Earth. Let me read verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now all of this took place in the, really, the, the wee hours of the morning. Very early in the morning, Roman officials would begin their work at daybreak so that they could be done mid-morning by noon at the end. This was so that they could be freed up to pursue all kinds of leisure activities. Now you can imagine what some of those leisure activities, in fact, I don't really want you to imagine what some of those leisure activities involved. All manner of debauchery and licentiousness. 
So really, Pilate here is just saying, look, we got to deal with this troublemaker. And can we do this as efficiently as possible? Because, you know, i got a tea time at 10. Pilate's the prefect of Judea. That was like a governor. He ruled from 26 to 36 AD. He enjoyed connections up and down the Roman food chain of power. And as a governor, he had wide-ranging powers, but always under the thumb of Rome. Pilate was, for the most part, a cruel guy. He was a harsh governor. He despised the Jews and, in fact, had no trouble making decisions that antagonized them. On one occasion, Pilate raided the temple treasure. He, he stole money to pay for an aqueduct that he was building. This obviously infuriated the Jews, but not to worry. Pilate thought through that. He had soldiers standing by who would beat the people who criticized him, some of them to death. On another occasion, he insulted the Jews by having soldiers uh, bearing flags with the image of Caesar parading through downtown Jerusalem. Almost caused a riot. Luke, in Luke 13, tells us that this same guy, Pilate, once mixed the blood of the Galileans with the blood of their sacrifices in just a sick and twisted show of power. This is the guy we're dealing with here. Pilate was a man who lusted for celebrity. He lusted for status. He put his career before anything and anybody. And as it pertains to Jesus here, Pilate is the law. He had authority to decide what to do with Jesus. And his word was final. There's no Supreme Court. There's no other counsel. Uh, there's no, no other appeals. Pilate held the fate and future of Jesus firmly in his hands. So he asked Jesus a question in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Seems like that'd be an appropriate question. Are you the king of the Jews? Because this is what I'm hearing, Jesus. Now notice the answer from Jesus. You have said so. What? It's a bit coy, isn't it? Like, Jesus, what do you, what do you mean by that? And here's where, in the original language here, it's actually a, a cluster. Jesus is not denying that he's king of the Jews. What he's really saying is, well... Pilate, I wouldn't exactly put it that way, but yes, I am king of the Jews. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the true king of the Jews, but Pilate, you have no idea who I am. You have no idea the kind of king I am. You have no idea the kind of power that I have. You think, Pilate, a helpless victim is standing before you, but you have no idea the kind of kingdom and the kind of king and the kind of power that I have. In just a few words, Jesus just threw down the gauntlet to Pilate. He's basically saying, Pilate, you do what you will, but my heavenly father will do what he wills. So we can understand then that the chief priests and the crowds, they're, they're not, they don't really like that answer from Jesus. Verse 3, they start hurtling more things. They start yelling even more accusations Against Jesus, Luke actually fills in the details for us. Luke chapter 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forgetting, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Those are some serious charges against Jesus. 
he's misleading our nation. He's for, forbidding us to really worship Caesar. He's actually saying that he's the true Messiah. And in verse 5 of Luke, it says, They were urgent, saying, He's stirring up the people, teaching throughout all Judea. So the crowds are saying, Hey, Pilate, this guy claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the true king. He's a troublemaker. He's stirring up people. He needs to be silenced, and you're the only one that can stop him. But yet, and that's why, actually, again, in, in Luke's account, uh, a couple times there, Pilate says, I can find no fault with him. I, I, I don't think he's done anything wrong, in other words. And that's why Pilate asked Jesus again in our text in verse 4. Are you sure, Jesus, you don't want to respond? These are some serious charges. that You, you don't want to say anything? Like, this would be the time to speak. You want to defend yourself? Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Jesus doesn't speak at all. In fact, the next few words that Jesus will say, he says while he's hanging on the cross. So Pilate is rightly amazed because Pilate is used to loud protests, to, to boisterous rebuttals, but all he hears from Jesus is the deafening sound of silence. Jesus doesn't even say a word in his defense. And he doesn't really have to. Because Jesus is not a victim. He's not a product of some unfortunate set of circumstances. Jesus knows that his life will be given for others, to save others. He knows that his time has come. He knows that he will be handed over, yet he willingly gives himself up. And so, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, Jesus doesn't say a word. This is no ordinary man standing before Pilate in his court on this morning. Church, this is real power. You don't have to say a word, and the ground beneath your enemies begins to shake. That's what's happening here. Pilate... To, to a degree, understands this. He gets it. He's amazed by the silence of Jesus. Who are you, Jesus? I mean, I think Pilate's thinking, man, I'm trying to figure you out. Man, you are the most interesting man in the world, Jesus. He's intrigued by Jesus. I think he finds Jesus compelling, very interesting. I think we can safely say that there is a, a level of fascination here that Pilate has towards Jesus, he's really trying to figure him out. Church, fascination with Jesus is not the same as saving faith in Jesus. And it may be that some of you are very curious about Jesus this morning. You're interested, you find him fascinating, like maybe a lot of the people here, the crowds that followed him. He's, he's an interesting historical figure that you can analyze and that you can observe. Muslims find Jesus interesting. He's a really great prophet. Hindus respect Jesus. He's one of millions of gods. Non-religious people really respect Jesus, at least his social ethic. But amazement with Jesus is not the same as trust in Jesus. To think that Jesus is cool 
is not the same as confessing that Jesus is my Lord. So yes, we can keep Jesus at a distance, we can analyze him, we can observe him, we can become fascinated with him, but you need to understand that the most important thing is not your examination of Jesus. The most important thing is his examination of you. His examination of your heart. His examination of your life. His examination of you. And as Jesus looks at you this morning, well, what does he see? What does he find? Pilate's fascination with Jesus, really his curiosity with Jesus, has brought him to, well, to kind of an interesting spot. It's brought him to a very uncomfortable spot, sitting on the fence. You can almost, you, read, you can't read this without thinking, man, that is it. I would not want to be that guy because he's in turmoil. There's that inner conflict. He can't make up his mind about Jesus or he's unwilling to make up his mind about Jesus. So Pilate comes up with a genius idea. Let's let the people decide. Now there was a custom at Passover, this is verse 6, of granting amnesty to a prisoner of the people's choice. Well, it just so happens that he's got a murderer named Barabbas in his custody. How very convenient. What do we know about this guy? What do we know about Barabbas? Well, we actually don't know too much. We know that his name, Barabbas, Bar, means son of Abbas, so son of the father. Matthew, and this is a, well, I'm kind of getting geeky here, but this is a Greek textual variant, so it, you're not going to read in the Bibles, but there's enough evidence here that says that Matthew actually writes it as Jesus Barabbas. That's who he calls this guy, Jesus Barabbas. Now, Jesus was a very common name in the first century. It's like Mike today. There's a lot of different Jesuses. The, the interesting thing, or what we want to know about this Jesus Barabbas, is that here we have a son of the father who is a violent guy. He's a murderer. He's a, he's a radical. He led a revolution against Rome. He's guilty of murder. He sought the violent overthrow of Rome and Roman occupation. We would look at Barabbas like we would view the 9-11 conspirators. They deserve to die. And Pilate, for his part, he doesn't, he doesn't really want to release Barabbas. And the crowds, if they were real honest, they would say, we don't want you to release that guy either. Because he's going to kill us. So in Pilate's mind, again, he's thinking, well, obviously, the people will make a good choice. Obviously, they're going to choose to grant amnesty, not to Barabbas, a violent murderer, but they'll grant amnesty to Jesus, the most interesting man in the world. It would be absurd to release a man with a proven track record of overthrowing the government. And that's why three times here, Pilate tries to free Jesus. Verse 9, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Pilate here, for, he sees the motives of the chief priests. Verse 10, it's envy. He sees right through them. They're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of his popularity. They're jealous of his status. And so they keep yelling for this murderer, Barabbas, to be released. It's interesting here that the crowds reject Jesus, not because of envy like the religious elite. The crowds reject Jesus because they have a very different version of kingship. 
They're saying, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a political ruler. We want this guy to solve all of our problems here on earth. That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. So for the second time, verse 12, Pilate attempts to free Jesus. What do you want me to do with this king of the Jews? Crowds say, crucify him. And so a third time, Pilate seeks to reason with very unreasonable people. He tries to free Jesus, verse 14. Why? What's the charge? What's he done? Even Pilate can see that Jesus is innocent. But the crowds look at Jesus and say, we want that guy. Crucify him. Understand, brothers and sisters, that there are two sons of the Father on trial this morning. Both of them are named Jesus, and yet they are completely different. One rules by laying down his life. The other by taking it from others. One is guilty and will soon be released and set free. The other is innocent and is about to be killed for others' guilt. In the two sons of the father in our text here, we have one amazing gospel. Do you know that we are all a bunch of Barabbases? This church is full of Barabbases. Even one sin on one day, well, you don't have to commit murder. You can just have one passing impure thought. That is enough to land us in the same spot as Barabbas. On trial, we are guilty. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. And the other son of the father, the son of God the father, was crucified for our sake so that we might be set free. The just will die for the unjust. And if it's true then that you, you can really tell the character of a person when they're in the furnace, sort of the fire, the, the furnace of affliction, that's really when the true character of a man or a woman will be revealed. Well, then what do we learn here about the character of Pilate? We know he's fascinated with Jesus. We, we think you, he, he knows that he's innocent. But Pilate is so used to sitting on the fence and playing to the crowds that his indecision about what to do with Jesus is actually a decision. Here's another very sad verse, verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Well, what do we say about Pilate? What can we say about Pilate other than he is a royal coward? Even though he can find no fault with Jesus, he actually thinks he's innocent. Pilate gives the people what they want. I mean, the crowd is happy. Rome, inevitably, will be satisfied. Pilate can kind of sit back and wash his hands of that. He can absolve himself of personal responsibility. Obviously, the... Uh, Approval ratings of Jesus are not really trending in the right direction. So Pilate can just say, look, I'm just giving the people what they want. That's a terrible way to govern, although not unfamiliar. 
perhaps, to many of us here. That's a, that's a really terrible way to govern a country or to run a business or to run a church. You might say, well, Brinkman, you didn't grow up here, even though, side point, I was an American history major many years ago. I do remember reading about we the people. That's important. We the people. Do you know what? We the people need a savior, first and foremost. And so we the people are not trusting in any government official to do and to act justly. We're not pinning our hopes on any political party either. We the people need a savior. It's not going to be Pilate. Pilate's a people pleaser. You know what? Above all else, his guiding principle here is to satisfy the crowds. Personal convictions, I don't have time for that right now. The truth, that's important, but I'll get to that later. Not right now. And even though you may not like to admit that, some of you may be living exactly like Pilate. Which way is the wind blowing? Let's go in that direction. I know you don't say audibly, you know, my life's goal is to please as many people as I can. I want to be as popular as I can. I want to make as many people like me as possible. Hey, let's say you and I get together at 3 o'clock. How about we give in to some peer pressure? Of course not. But what is driving you to be the person that you are? What is driving you to do the things that you do, to say the things that you say, to prioritize the things that you do? Maybe it is that you're, you say, you know what, I'm going to do this because I know that this is going to please my parents. And they'll let me know. Or I want to please my, my friends or this, my teammates or this group of friends. Or I'm going to do this because I know this is going to really please Pastor Jeff. This is going to please people in my home group. And you know where that road goes? Suddenly you find yourself thinking about things that you never considered before. Then there are certain things that you dare not bring up because you're playing to the crowd. There's certain sins that you dare not confess. You can't bring that to light. You've got to cover that stuff. And then before long, your desire is really the same as Pilate's. I'm just trying to really fit in, get along, have people think well of me, please the crowd. Church, be very wary if everyone loves you or if everyone hates you. Now, if everyone hates you, we should talk about that. That's not good. But if everyone loves you, is it because you're just very adept at being the kind of person that everyone around you wants you to be? Now hear me. It is not a bad thing to be kind. It's not a bad thing to be loving. It's not a bad thing to be gracious and compassionate. I think this next week is like World Kindness Week. Even non-Christians understand the need to be kind. Yes. But don't love the approval and opinion of others more than you love the truth. And don't live for the applause of people more than the praise of Jesus. And don't think for a moment that on certain Sundays I don't struggle with this as well. Pilate is a coward. Cowardice is a very serious sin. Failure to confess Christ, to, to stand for the truth, well, God takes that very, very seriously. And so we need to recognize, maybe we just need to remember that evil comes packaged in all kinds of different forms. If I were to ask you, just name for me the three most evil, vilest people in human history. 
Well, we would probably come up with very similar people. These are dictators, these are terrorists, they've committed some great atrocities. Sometimes, though, the worst people who end up doing the worst things are weak and spineless and just full of compromise. Yes, sometimes the middle of the road is exactly where we need to be. That's where God would have us to be. But sometimes, if you're in the middle of the road, you're going to get hit by traffic. The middle of the road can be the most dangerous place to be. And when it comes to making a decision about Jesus, when it comes to following him as his disciple, when it comes to living faithfully as his disciple, there is no middle road. You do need to take a side. And you need to decide. Maybe you're there and you're thinking, you know what, Brinkman, you're, are you being a little bit hard on Pilate? I mean, yes, he's weak. Kind of pathetic, but he's in a really hard spot. I mean, we can appreciate that. He's, he's kind of well-intentioned. I mean, he's, he's conflicted, yes, but I think he's trying to do his best. Do you know how history remembers Pilate, the people pleaser? History remembers Pilate in only one way. It's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. So for the end of time in all of human history, people will know Pilate for one thing. Jesus died at your hands. That's how this coward, that's how this people pleaser Pilate is remembered. Pilate had everything that you and I would want. Sometimes everything that you and I actually chase after. He had wealth. He had connections. He had power. Every leisure pursuit imaginable. Again, he, he had all of these things that many of us spend our lives chasing after. We want those connections. We want some sort of power. We want status. We want a good reputation with others. We want people around us to like us. We want a lot of friends. You can spend your whole life chasing after these things that promise you the world. It's going to leave you empty. They're never going to deliver. They're never going to satisfy your soul. Is that the kingdom that you actually want to live in? You actually do need to decide. And then we see Jesus. He's bound. He's abandoned. The religious leaders hate him. The crowds want to crucify him. His disciples have deserted him. An insurrectionist, a murderer named Barabbas, well, he, he ends up getting released. And so by the end of this passage, in verse 15, Jesus is condemned and scourged. Scourging is brutal. Jesus would have been bound to a pillar, maybe a post, He'd been beaten repeatedly with a whip, the end of which was full of shards of glass or bone fragments. It would literally tear flesh from the bone. And there was no prescribed number of lashes. So scourging was oftentimes fatal. There's no need for a crucifixion because that guy is already dead. 
Well, what do we see here about the character of this king? The king of the Jews. He seems powerless. He seems even weak. But the irony, church, in this text is that though Jesus may seem powerless and weak, it is Jesus who is actually still in charge, not Pilate. And it is the will of God the Father that is being accomplished, not the whims of an evil mob crowd. Do you know that Jesus could have put an end to this? He could have called down legion of angels to do his bidding, to rescue him, to save him. But he didn't. Jesus chose to accept everything that happened to him because his kingdom is a radically different kingdom than any other earthly kingdom. Because Jesus knew his mission. Sent from God the Father to earth to lay aside his glory, to stoop low to us, to save us. Yes, to save all of us Barabbases and the people pleasers and the compromisers and the hypocrites and the weak. Why would Jesus do that? Pilate's not doing that. Not putting any trust in Barabbas. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he become weak for our sake? Love. 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you belong to Christ this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you know that Jesus loves you more than you think? He loves you more than probably you, you and I think about in the normal day-to-day -day grind sometimes of life. So if that's the kind of king that we serve, and if that's the kind of king that we worship and that we're learning to adore, what does that mean then for us as his people? For those of us who, who really do want to live life faithfully in his kingdom. Well, at the very least, it means that we live every single day to please Jesus. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. We make it our goal. When Paul talks about goals, he, he knows what he's talking about. We make it our goal to do what? To please Jesus. So here's what that means, brothers and sisters. When you wake up tomorrow morning, and I would encourage you, Monday morning is a great morning to wake up and say, Lord, I want to please you today. Especially on Mondays. But it may very well be before your feet hit the floor. Lord, in everything I do today, the meetings that I'm going to have, the the people that I'm going to be shepherding, those that I'm caring for, the people that I'm providing for, whatever it is, Lord, I want to please you today more than anyone or anything. Help me to do that. Give me grace, Lord, to please you, to do what is right before you. I mean, it means that we can confess our sins. We can actually be bold about confessing our sins. Why? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, do you know the freedom of being forgiven by God? You can see it on your face. In fact, every 
we ought to be the most joyful people in the world, shouldn't we? Not because life is perfect, not because there's not challenges, not because it's not hard, but because we're forgiven. So we lay aside our privileges so that we can serve others. We actually don't seek a middle ground when a middle ground would actually be sinful. We joyfully suffer for doing good, not because suffering feels good, but because it is good and we know that God will bless in the end. Maybe we stop looking to try and sit on the fence. How can I make this group of friends happy? How can I make my parents happy? How can I please this other group of friends? That's, that's a really hard way to live. Maybe the safest place on earth is when we fully entrust and submit and surrender our lives to the true king. So we're not even going to try this week to sit on the fence. Maybe you are a teenager here this morning, and you're saying, you know what, I really want Jesus to be Lord of my life. Amen. We want to help you do that. There's people here who would love to encourage you, to walk with you, and as a 16-year-old, help you say, you know what, that's the most important decision you're ever going to make, and we're going to walk it through with you. You're not going to have to do that alone. Or perhaps you're here this morning, and you're hearing this, and you're thinking, yeah, it actually has been kind of a little while that I've actually thought a lot about Jesus. Life is busy. It's hard. Really haven't cracked open my Bible. Maybe you're feeling the condemnation. You know you're the biggest fraud here. Hypocrite. Maybe even you're thinking, well, that's what I feel about me. Jesus must think the same thing about me. Well, I can assure you, if you really are a Christian on the basis of the word of God, that if Jesus was going to turn his back on you, he would have already done that. But he hasn't. And maybe you're here and you're just interested. You're curious. And you find yourself sitting on that very uncomfortable fence. Can I encourage you to choose? To decide. Stop sitting on the fence. Repent. And believe the good news of the gospel for you. So brothers and sisters, is this sermon for you? You need to decide. Let's pray.